text for us is the first seven verses of Acts 6. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and with them. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The proposal pleased the whole group, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles, who prayed and laid their hands on them, and so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This is God's word. So this morning, we're continuing our study of the book of Acts uh, with this kind of short section that I think if you were just reading through the book of Acts, you might just sort of skip over it and continue on to something that seems a little bit more interesting. But I actually think that these seven verses have some really practical things for us to learn. Uh, As we study the book of Acts after Easter, seeing how the church reacted to Jesus' resurrection as we still bask in the afterglow of our own celebration of Easter, we learn some really practical things from Acts about how we organize and do ministry together. You saw the theme of the sermon is the dynamics of ministry. And so we're going to break the, the teaching into three parts today. They're the three points that are on your sermon notes outline. Uh, we're going to look at the proportion of ministry, the purpose of ministry, and the personnel of ministry. And what we're going to do today, because this, pra- this text is just very practical, is we're going to apply it super specifically to cross of life. And I'm kind of going to spoil the end of this for you before we start. And that is to say that what we're going to find out as we look at this text is that in many ways, I think Cross of Life is really doing well at what the Bible is asking of us here. But what I'm going to do then is apply this to us a little bit more to encourage us to be even more excellent. So as you hear me teach from the text today, what I want you to not hear is any guilt. I actually think in many ways God has blessed Cross of Life with some really cool things happening among us. What I want you to hear is... I think we can get even better, okay? So let's dive in with the first point, the proportion of ministry. The text starts by telling us that in those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Okay, so a couple things we gotta figure out here to understand what's happening. First of all, the daily distribution of food was something that the church did to take care of the poor around them. So their ministry was not just about sharing the gospel that Jesus had risen, but they also wanted to take care of the needy. And so they did this by taking offerings, either of food itself, if they had crops, or people would give money and they would use the money to buy food, and they would give that food to people who were in need, particularly widows who couldn't provide for themselves. It seems that, though, as the number of people in the church was increasing, the uh, ability to distribute the food properly was waning a bit. Uh, The Hellenistic Jews were complaining that the Hebraic Jews were overlooking their widows in this daily distribution of food. The Hellenistic Jews uh, were uh, ethnically Jewish folks who were culturally assimilated into the Greco-Roman world around them. 
in contrast to the Hebraic Jews, who were both ethnically Jewish and also culturally Jewish, uh, these Hellenistic Jews were starting to come into the Christian faith. Now, if that seems a little bit weird to you, um, just know that this already happens and we see it all the time around us. Uh, Because we're a country of immigrants, every one of us comes from a certain ethnic background and uh, the vast majority of us have not had generations and generations of people who have lived in Canada. Uh, our, Our forefathers and mothers came over to this country from various places. And yet, despite the fact that you might be Jamaican or Portuguese or Indian or whatever, uh, many of us assimilate, integrate into Western Canadian culture. So we don't stop being the ethnicity that we are, we just take on a new culture that goes along with that ethnicity. Um, That seems to be what was happening with the Hellenistic Jews. Again, contrast to the Hebraic Jews, these would be sort of the folks who uh, do immigrate to Canada but don't integrate into Canadian culture as much. They may hold on to their mother tongue or they might continue in many of their cultural practices. They don't really integrate into what we might think of as, as, as Western culture. And of course, neither of those is wrong, but what we're seeing is a very similar thing happening here in the text. So these Hellenistic Jews, these folks who are now coming into the faith, uh, their widows are being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And I think what we might be tempted to do as we read this text is to think that this is an issue of racism. Right? So you have the Hebraic Jews, and they don't really like these Hellenistic Jews who have integrated into a different culture. Um, that's not what's going on here. I do think race plays a role in this a little bit, and we'll talk about that later. But the the basic problem here is not one of of race or ethnicity. And you can see that right in the text. The very first words say that the problem was that the number of people in the church was increasing. It's a problem of scale. Does this make sense? It's not so much a problem that the Hebraic Jews were intentionally or maliciously saying, oh, those Hellenistic Jews, they're less than human or something like this. It was just simply a problem of there were a lot of people coming into the church and the human infrastructure necessary to take care of those people was less than adequate. Which brings us to the first point, the proportion of ministry. Uh, In the 1990s, there was an anthropologist, his name was Robin Dunbar, and he did some research on uh, the human capacity for relationship. And what he found was that pretty consistently across cultures, across across ethnicities, people were basically capable of maintaining about 150 relationships. They'd be the people that you could know kind of what's going on in their life at any given time. And this number was pretty solid. Like, he would find that even if people would add relationships, necessarily some of the people that they were interacting with would kind of fall off the table, so to speak. They wouldn't talk to them as much anymore. This number then became what's known as either Dunbar's number or the Dunbar principle, which inspired a whole bunch of people to start researching even more about what humans can relationally do. They found that not only can you have 150 relationships, people that you know, but that if you start to narrow that to people that you have meaningful relationships with, people that you don't have to ask them, hey, what's new? Because you know what's going on in their life. Human beings can really only hold on to about 10 meaningful relationships. And you can narrow the focus even more to confidants, like people who know not just what's happening, but what's happening behind what's happening. Those people that you tell everything to, the darkest secrets, the the greatest goals and dreams, human beings really can only hold on to about three of those relationships. Now, why am I telling you this? Because it seems that not only does the church in a modern sense, but in an ancient sense, 
operate by these same sociological, anthropological um, findings. You look back at the church, 3,000 people were added to the church at Pentecost. 12 apostles were going to minister to those 3,000 people at Pentecost. If you divide 3,000 by 12, you get 250. Now, when you remember that there are also a number of women who are supporting the apostles, that number shrinks a little bit to about 150. And then you think of Jesus. How many disciples did he have? 12. 12 meaningful relationships, people that he knew what was going on in their day-to-day life. And he had an inner circle. Three. Peter, James, and John. His closest friends, who he brought to even things that the other nine disciples did not see. What we find in the modern church is very similar. People who study church demographics will find that uh, basically a church is able to keep about 100 members, at a, excuse me, it plateaus at about 100 members as it grows. And if you know Dunbar's principle, then you can see why this might happen. Where do most people have their primary relationship in a church? With the pastor. And so if your pastor has some friends who don't go to church and some extended family and maybe some colleagues, well, that works out to about 150 relationships that your pastor can reasonably keep. And there's a reason then that churches don't grow past this number. Once the pastor has reached his relational capacity, people don't feel like they're getting served and they leave and go to some other church or something like this. Okay, what's the point of all this? It's to say that... As a church, we have to be conscious of our relational capacities and realize that if we expect that a pastor or just a leadership team are going to be able to take care of all the needs of a community of people, we are going to fall short. It's not going to be malicious, probably. It's not going to be intentional. It's just simply going to be human capacity. Now, like I said, I think Cross of Life in general is doing pretty well at this. One of the cool things that I see is that many of you are intentionally having spiritual conversations with one another, in a sense, pastoring one another, holding each other accountable to God's word, encouraging each other in difficult times, giving each other direction when you're struggling. This happens among us. And it's a really cool thing, and I actually think it's one of the reasons that I'm optimistic about where we can grow healthily and sustainably as a congregation. But I also want us to be even more excellent. You know, the fact of the matter is, it's really only about a handful of people who really intentionalize these spiritual conversations with the people of our congregation, and God be praised for those folks. But I wonder if we couldn't all be like that. Of course, our relational capacities will eventually hit a wall where we can't go any farther, but I'm wondering if you can think to yourself, when's the last time I had an intentional spiritual conversation with somebody in our congregation who is not in my family or my pastor? Every one of us ought to think that way. It's so easy in Western culture to consider church as something I consume. I come here, I get my spiritual commodities, I can go on with my normal life. But actually the way the Bible sees the church is a gathering of people who have ownership in the ministry together. It's not just one person putting on a show that we can all enjoy. It's not an inspiring speech where we can take our little theological nuggets and store them away so that we can use them later. It's an experience of God and community where every one of us, uh, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, is able to speak to one another using the Scripture in order to encourage, convict, and forgive one another. Let me give you some real practical reasons why this works. I think every one of us knows experientially 
that when you hear more than one voice say the same thing, you're more likely to believe it. So you who are parents, you know this. You can tell your children something a thousand times, but then like a teacher or a coach or another mentor will say the same thing one time and your child will think it's the most profound thought that ever happened. It's because they heard it from multiple voices. If my voice is the only theological voice that you're hearing, that's a problem. And by the way, if you say, well, I watch YouTube sermons or listen to podcasts or read Christian books, okay, but those people don't know you. They're not writing or speaking to you. They're writing or speaking to somebody else. Having somebody in here who knows you and can speak God's word to you, that's another voice. This is totally biblical too. Why does God give us four gospels? Why four accounts of the life of Jesus? Wouldn't one have sufficed? Well, certainly one would have sufficed, but God gave us four, that we would have multiple witnesses to the same events, that we could hear it from multiple perspectives, that we could have the affirmation that multiple people saw the same thing happen. This works. And it's also why we have life groups, which, by the way, we try to keep our life groups at about 10 people. So you can have 10 meaningful relationships with people that you're meeting with regularly in order to encourage one another to speak God's word to one another so that you can spiritually grow. If we want to be a congregation who leans into a biblical model of ministry, it will be by every one of us taking ownership of this ministry and seeing it as our responsibility to use God's word on each other. Okay, so this is the proportion of ministry. Let's finish off with this last point. It's your notes. The last, uh, fill in the blank in your notes. God gives us multiple voices to speak to us. Sorry, I didn't get that up there before. Let's then look at the purpose of ministry. In the text, we have two places where the apostles give us an insight into the purpose of ministry. Uh, in verse two, they say, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. And in verse four, they say, we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. So you notice what they don't say. They don't say, this ministry to the widows, uh, that's not really that important. No, we don't really have to do that. No, we just got to worry about the Bible. They don't say that, right? They, They actually appoint people to take care of this ministry. They see the things that the church does in its generosity to its community as important. But what they never lose is what is most important. Like you heard me say to the children, a church may do a number of things. You might have great friends here, good conversations, good coffee, whatever it is. But what is most important is the ministry of the word. And so what do the apostles do? Well, they appoint seven men to take on all the other stuff that the church is doing that is not the ministry of the word. Now, where does the rubber hit the road for us on this? Well, it's to understand that in ministry, there is a big purpose, that we are here for the ministry of the word, but that a whole bunch of other things are going to happen as a church. And that it is the responsibility of the church to give those different tasks to people who are capable and called to do those things. Among us, I am called to be the one who applies God's word to us in a public way, to administer the sacraments to you. And it says on my call document, do those things, and then it doesn't say anything else that I'm supposed to do. And it's not that I won't do things, But that to the extent to which I can lean into those specific things which I'm trained for and called for, we are going to be blessed as a community. If you're taking notes with us, you can write it down like this. A church will do well when their pastor is allowed to be a pastor. 
It's really common, especially in small churches like us, uh, for a pastor to do everything or almost everything. And that might be because of the community. The congregation might say, well, we pay the guy, so we might as well make him do work, which is woefully off base as to why we pay our pastors. Or it might be actually the pastor's fault where he thinks to himself kind of arrogantly, well, I got to do it because I do it better than everybody else. It's easy to fall into this. But a church will do well when their pastor is allowed to be a pastor. When their pastor is freed up to do the ministry of the word and prayer. And can I say another compliment about Cross of Life? We do this really well. There are so many things that Cross of Life does that I don't have any hand in. There are things that get done week after week after week by capable people, and I don't even check on them. Because by God's grace, he has encouraged and uh, entrusted you with these opportunities to serve, and you're doing a great job at it. And I think you know this, but I, I want to be a little bit more explicit about this because the Bible names names. I want to name names and thank some people who do that kind of stuff. Like Steve, who does tech every week. I don't even talk to Steve about tech. Or Fred, who organizes volunteers to set up everything here in the morning so we can just come in and worship. Or Deanna, who does all of our clerical work, all of our purchasing, and she runs her own Bible study on the side. Or Will, who runs our men's group. Jess, who picks all our mu music and organizes our musicians. Werner, who's been taking care of the sale of our property. Paul Coyle, who does all of our finances and organizes our men's retreat. Pam, who's actually at our women's retreat right now and has organized the whole thing. And numerous other people that you can see sitting around this room who put in service all the time, and I don't have to check on them. That allows me to be a pastor. And I'll be, I will say, I don't know another church in our church body that allows their pastor to be a pastor as much as Cross of Life does. So good job. You know what the upshot of this is? The people who come into our congregation get a level of pastoral care that I think is almost unheard of in North American Christianity. Like every single person who has come into our congregation in the last couple months has been able to have me sit in their house or at a coffee shop with them for over two months every week for an hour or more, giving them personalized pastoral care right from the scriptures. Some of you, you went through that, and I think you're thankful for it. Don't be thankful to me. I'm just a guy. Be thankful to this congregation who allows me to be a pastor. And keep making that happen. Like, it's one of the things that we as a community can offer to this world. Again, not a show, but personal pastoral care, where I have the time to sit across the table from you and apply God's word to you specifically. This is what the church did in Acts, and it's what we do as well. Now, an encouragement. Let's take it to the next level. If you're not somebody who owns an area of ministry, you can do it. There are things that we're not doing, we could be doing. We're just not, because no one's taking it on. There are still some more things that I do that I don't have to be the one to do. You could take those on. We could make it even more possible for me to be a pastor as we serve together. Okay, so that's the purpose of ministry. Finally, then, the personnel of ministry. Um, I said at the beginning that this is not really an issue of race or ethnicity. But I don't think we can honestly read this text without seeing that at least it's in play. Right? Why is it that the Hebraic Jews were overlooking the Hellenistic Jews' widows? I don't think it was intentional. I don't think it was malicious. 
But it did happen. And we could speculate any number of reasons. Maybe it's because they lived closer to them or they had an already existing relationship with them or it's just easier to culturally relate to them. Who knows? But it happened. And so I think it's good for us to examine ourselves and ask, we may not be intentionally excluding somebody or or maliciously thinking some people as less than, but we do have blind spots. I mean, living in Mississauga, we're surrounded by diversity. I look at this community in front of me, and you are a very obviously diverse group. And so we might think to ourselves, well, we don't struggle with that, but but don't we? It's not intentional, it's not malicious, but don't we have blind spots? I know I do. I am a 32-year-old white man, married, with little kids, and living at the median household income of Mississauga, which means I don't know what it's like to be a woman, to be a senior, to be a teenager right now, to be single right now, to be divorced, to have teenage kids or adult kids, to live closer to the poverty line or far away from it. I don't know what that's like. I want to. I want to serve you. But I just don't know. And therefore, necessarily, I I can't completely relate to what your life is like. And if you're in any way different than me, you can't totally relate to the way my life is. We have these blind spots. And so what we need to do is exactly what the church did. You see this in verse 5? It says, They chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. Isn't that awesome? Maybe you can't see it in English, but what you notice when you look at this in the Greek is that every single one of these names is a Greek name. In other words, when the Hellenistic Jews came to the Hebraic Jews and said, you're overlooking our widows in the daily distribution of food, the plan was, well, then let's put the Hellenistic Jews in charge. In other words, let's overcome our blind spots by putting people in charge who don't have those blind spots. If you're a typical uh, ideological conservative person, you might get a little bit uncomfortable with things like diversity, equity, and inclusion. And fair enough, there are some anti-biblical things about that ideology. But we have to be very honest that the apostles are being very diverse and very inclusive in the way that they put together ministry teams. And I think there's a number of things for us to learn in this. As we think about ministry together, it is important for us to empower all different types of people to do ministry. Because if we don't, we won't serve people like them. Maybe you've noticed this. I'm probably blind to it. But as a 32-year-old white man with kids, I probably make more sermon illustrations that are relatable to people like me than people who are different than me. Again, I don't intend it. I'm not malicious. But I'm sure it happens. And therefore, it might be easy for us to become a congregation that generally has people who are about my age range, about my socioeconomic status, probably about my race or something like this. That's frankly what happens in many churches. You ever seen a church that's all white or all black? A church that's all older people or all rich people or all poor people? It's because they don't have those blind spots. They serve the people who are like them. And it's not to say anything negative about those churches. I'm glad that they exist. But I want to be a diverse and inclusive church. I don't want to be a church that serves all types of people, not just people like me. And so how are we going to accomplish that? Well, let's take a look at the personnel of ministry. 
What happened when they had this issue of the daily distribution of food is that the Hellenistic Jews came to the Hebraic Jews and said, hey, there's a problem. And that's what we need to learn first. If you're somebody who sees one of my blind spots or one of our church's blind spots, don't keep it to yourself. Don't complain about it to your friends. Don't post about it on social media. Don't just rage against the leadership team or the, or the pastor. How could they? How can't they? Say something about it. And then, realize what happens next. The Hellenistic Jews come to the Hebraic Jews and say, here's the problem, you're overlooking our widows. And what happens? The Hellenistic Jews get put in charge. In other words, if you, if you have a problem, then solve the problem. If you see a blind spot, do something about it. God gave you the gift of noticing that thing that I didn't notice or our team didn't notice. Solve it. God's given you the skills. He's given you the gift. You can do something about it, and we can serve a diverse group of people. And then, on the other side, for those of us who do have positions of leadership in our congregation, let's be open to that. Right? The Hebraic Jews didn't say to the Hellenistic Jews, whatever, fix it yourself. We don't care. No, they intentionalized it, and they said, let's have a conversation about this. Let's, let's figure out what's the best way to do this. Is this proposal acceptable to you? Will this solve the problem? We ought to do the same thing. We're trying to do this, and I think in many ways we're doing pretty well, or maybe better than most. We try to ask for the opinions of all sorts of people. We've included Nikki Allen on our leadership team as a female liaison, which means she comes to every meeting just to give her perspective as a woman in our congregation. We added Mark Allen as a young person on our leadership team in order to give the perspective of young people, but there's a whole bunch of demographics we're still not hearing from regularly. We should. And then know that when you share that with me, my answer will 99% of the time be, awesome, you're the church, go do it. What do you need? Because this is all of our ministry. It's not about me. It's not about our leadership team. It's not about our church body. It's about us working together as those who have been called by Christ in this city at this time, at this place, to be a light in the darkness. So after all this, you might be saying, well, that's a whole lot of practical information, Pastor, but I came here to hear about Jesus. <laughs> Here's what you need to hear. You matter to Jesus. You matter to Jesus. You matter to Jesus so much that he would give his life to die for you, not just to get you to heaven, but to empower you right now to be a blessing to other people. And you might think to yourself, well, I'm too young, or I'm too old, or I haven't been a Christian that long, or I haven't been in this church for that long, or I've been in this church for a really long time, and people should be serving me, or whatever the thing may be. You matter to Jesus so much that, that he brought you in and empowered you to be a blessing to this community. And therefore, it maybe isn't even, is even more proper to say, not only are you a blessing to Jesus, but you're, you matter to us. You matter to us. To the extent to which you just come and consume that's fine. You can be saved. But you won't be able to plug into a beautiful community that God is growing here. You'll deprive us of your skills, your perspective, your background, your empathy, or your analytical thoughts, or your vision, or your practical mind. You'll deprive us, deprive us of all those things. So don't. Jesus loves you enough to call you into this community to be a blessing to us. So be a blessing. Let's pray. 
Jesus, thank you for calling us together as Cross of Life at this time together in this city. You've given us all unique gifts and perspectives, backgrounds, ethnicities, family situations, and you did that on purpose so that we could be a blessing to as many people as possible. I pray that the things that you are already doing among us that we've been able to rejoice in today continue and continue with even greater energy and progress. I also pray that we would add things to our ministry that would be a blessing to each other and to the community around us. And finally, give us the peace of knowing that you love us enough to include us, to not just save us and get us out of here, but to leave us behind so that we can do the work. Give us the energy, the patience, the compassion, the smarts to figure out how best to serve each other and the city around us. To the glory of your name, amen.